You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 216, The World Goes to War. For the Japanese Empire, the slogan, Don't Miss the Bus, as in following Hitler's example, had just become national policy. It was the summer of 1940. France had been beaten, and the British seemed to be the next victim of Hitlerism. To be sure, the military within Prime Minister Kanoye's cabinet was not aiming for war, but rather peace. The men in uniform convinced their leader and the civilians within the cabinet that their course, allying with Germany and Italy and taking the resources of Southeast Asia, was Japan's best and now only hope for surviving in the current world. Explaining further, the military told the Prime Minister that French Indochina, with its rubber, coal, rice, and tin, was a treasure lying in the street, just waiting to be picked up. Because the French had just been beaten, and the new government of Vichy was in no position to deny, or more importantly, to defend their far-off colony. Of course, there were those cabinet members who fought against this. Foreign Minister Matsuoka, Mr. 50,000 Words, said that expanding the war would bring in the West as their access to such places would be closed off, something the economically struggling United States would not tolerate. Joining the Foreign Minister was Army Chief of Staff Prince Kanin. He, too, predicted a war with America, and so resigned, crying with sadness as he did so. And to prove their point, the United States did react strongly when the Japanese invaded northern French Indochina to block Chongqing from receiving goods. 
as covered last time, during the battle for the southern Chinese province of Guangxi, which started in November of 1939 and lasted one year. The Japanese also eventually took, besides the provincial capital, Nanning, the county of Longzhou in the southwest, near the border with French Indochina. This was in early 1940. By controlling Longzhou, the Japanese were able to dominate the eastern branch of the Kunming Haifang Railway, which ended at Friendship Pass, closer to the border. Now the last Chinese overland route to Chongqing was cut. Then, in June of 1940, when France was knocked out of the war, what was left of unoccupied France was put under the control of Marshal Philippe Béton, and this included the French colonies. But even this rather straightforward picture was made messy by General Charles de Gaulle as he implored France's soldiers to come fight for him and free France. But even before the French armistice was signed on June 19th, Japan sent Governor-General of Indochina, Georges Catreau, a request that all supply routes to China be closed and that a 40-man Japanese inspection team would be allowed in-country to make sure the French were complying. However, this request was not only an ultimatum, but a ploy, as the Japanese were already assembling troops and ships at nearby jump-off points. Patan's government was informed by de Gaulle's Free France, via the Americans, of the true situation, as Tokyo informed Berlin and the Americans intercepted the message and had been able to read much of Japan's codes for some time. Governor General Katroy desperately wanted to tell the Japanese that this would be impossible for France to tolerate. But between Japan's amassed troops and his relative weakness, the French governor agreed on June 20, 1940. By the end of the month, the last train taking supplies to Chiang Kai-shek's government was allowed through. For all his pains, Katroy would be replaced, but even before the new man could arrive, just two days later, after giving in to the Japanese demand, Tokyo informed Katroy that they had another request. Naval basing rights at Guangzhou-Wan, or Canton, and the total closure of the border with China. This last part was to be completed by July 7th. By the end of June, the Japanese inspection team, with Asaku Nishihara as its leader, had arrived. On July 3rd, Isaku informed the new Governor-General, Admiral Jean de Croix, of Japan's third request, to be given air bases and the right to transport combat troops through Indochina. De Croix sent the request to Pétain. Along with the message, de Croix sent his opinion that although what forces France had in Indochina, under the command of General Maurice Martin, were not enough to stop a full Japanese invasion, he believed they had enough to dissuade the potential enemy from entering the country. The French had about 32,000 regular troops and 17,000 auxiliaries. However, all were under-equipped. The new French foreign minister, Paul Badeau, sent a proposal that was accepted by Foreign Minister Matsuoka on August 30th that said 
Yes, the Japanese could station troops in country and transport them through, but only as long as the Sino-Japanese War lasted, which is exactly what Tokyo wanted. As for the details, that was left for the military men on the ground. General Martin and General Nishihara, the head of the inspection team. The talks began on September 3rd in Hanoi. However, as if ignoring their own agreement, on September 6th, the Japanese infantry battalion crossed the border near the French fort at Dongdang. For this, De Croix stopped the talks. General Nishihara responded on September 18th by sending the French another ultimatum. This one was even more to the point. Namely, that Japanese troops would enter Indochina proper on the 22nd at 10 p.m. local time. De Croix countered by agreeing, but said that the number had to be limited to 6,000. Tokyo wanted 25,000 men, but Nishihara got them down to the 6,000. Just before the ultimatum of September 22nd, both sides signed an agreement that said the 6,000 soldiers could come in, that airfields would be given over, and that 25,000 additional troops could be transported through the country. The first contingent of Japanese troops would come by ship. However, as had happened before in Manchuria and at Marco Polo Bridge, the local commanders wanted a stronger tone than those back in Tokyo. They also wanted honor for themselves and their men. So instead of sending elements of the 5th Infantry Division by ship as agreed, they were ordered to march across the border. The French, looking seaward, were surprised and started firing at those crossing on September 22nd at 10 p.m. The fighting spread, but the Japanese had tanks in tow. The French, with their Foreign Legion troops, began to surrender. The next day, September 23rd, Vichy sent a protest to Tokyo. Meanwhile, Japan sent more men across and began landing additional troops at various port cities, not to mention bombing cities with bombers from carriers off the coast. Vichy, to their credit, had standing orders to shoot at any aircraft or ships that approached without permission. But the Japanese, with their superior weaponry, quickly moved inland and took airports, port cities, and larger urban areas. By the evening of September 26th, the fighting died down. Having got what they came for, the Japanese occupied the Tonkin area, or northern Indochina, which held Hanoi and the vital port city of Haiphong. As for the rest, it was returned to the French, along with apologies, and the French prisoners were freed. As for the southern half, Japan was allowed to station some 40,000 troops there, but they did not act on this right away, as it would enrage the Americans and British even more. There was also the lingering threat of the Soviet Union to the north. However, the following year, just to jump ahead for a moment, when Germany invaded Russia in June, Japan's high command decided to strike south to take the rest of Indochina. For one, Japan would have the oil it needed, so the threats from the United States would be empty. Perhaps this would allow them both to return to some version of normalcy. Also, the whole of Indochina could be used as a jump-off point 
when the time came to take the Dutch East Indies. By the end of July the following year, 1941, some 140,000 Japanese troops would be moved into Indochina for just such an attack. As the Japanese troops poured into Indochina, the last port receiving goods from the United States to Chongqing was cut off. The Americans expressed their anger to Tokyo. True, the help from the United States was not staggering, but it was vital, and the Americans did not appreciate what help they were giving to be so affected. And now even those goods coming over the Burma Road were now threatened. Hello everyone, Ray here. Are you hiring? Posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it? Well, ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. One more time to make sure you don't forget. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. ZipRecruiter the smartest way to hire. As for the British, Prime Minister Churchill and Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden were of two different minds. As the Japanese did not push down through southern Indochina at first, Churchill wanted to take out the two Indian brigades from Singapore at the end of the Malaysian Peninsula, for they were certainly needed elsewhere. However, Eden wrote to his leader that, there is every indication that Germany has made some deal with Japan within these last few days, and it seems, therefore, wise to make some provision for the land defense of Singapore. And though he didn't know it for sure, Eden was spot on. The day after fighting died down in Indochina, Tokyo would sign the Tripartite Pact with Nazi Germany and Fascist Italy. This, despite how the Imperial Japanese Navy felt, as they assumed that in case of war between Germany and the United States, they would be obligated to come in. But Foreign Minister Matsuoka reassured the naval hierarchy that this was not the case. Furthermore, a deal between the three would give the United States pause in dealing harshly with Japan. But even if war did come between Europe and the United States, Japan was not automatically obligated to step in. Tokyo, it believed, was getting all the benefits without any of the risks. Prime Minister Kanoye was not thrilled with this pact, but knew if he stood in its way, the military members of his cabinet would quit and his government would collapse. Emperor Hirohito was against this too, but he didn't get a vote. However, he told his prime minister, just before affixing his official seal, that he was sure 
this would lead to war against Britain and the Americans, and that you must therefore share with me the joys and sorrows that will follow. So, on September 27, 1940, Japan signed the Tripartite Pact in Berlin. Strangely, just before signing the document himself, Hitler believed, and one can easily argue that foreign policy was one of his strong suits, that this agreement, like Matsuoka, would help keep the peace in Asia, which was good for Nazi Germany. However, just after the pact was signed, the Nazi leader changed his thinking, or was lying to his intimates the whole time. Now he wanted Japan in the war, against Great Britain, definitely, so ordered his ambassador in Tokyo to invite the Japanese to attack Singapore, just as soon as they could. Of course, this might lead to a war between Japan and the United States, but Hitler was willing to take that chance. As for the two Western powers, the United States and Britain, they saw Japan joining the other two as proof that all three were alike. All they wanted were empires and were willing to invade innocent countries to get them. Soviet Russia was also alarmed by this pact. Would its non-aggression pact with Germany hold? For how long? Would the ceasefire with Japan turn into something more? or disappear completely. Then, incredibly, German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop used Stalin's complaint about the signing of the pact as an excuse to invite Russia to sign as well. The German told Stalin that this document had no aggressive aims at America. In fact, it was the opposite. Having the three countries aligned would help keep America peaceful, or rather, humble. This was exactly how Foreign Minister Matsuoka felt. He told his eldest son, If you stand firm and start hitting back, the American will know he's talking to a man, and you two can then talk man to man. After that, we can shake hands with the United States. The result? The peace will be kept in the Pacific, while forming a great combine of capitalistic nations around the world against communism. And to Matsuoka's intricate, and it must be said, devious mind, the tripartite pact would also help with the China incident. He said, the solution of the incident should rest on mutual assistance and prosperity, not the hope of getting outside help to threaten China. To do this, we should use the good offices of a third nation. I think the United States would do admirably for this purpose. But here's the question. What concessions will Japan, or rather, the army, make? To this podcaster's mind, getting the already angry United States to act as negotiator between the two warring sides, while the war is still going on, after the massacres of Nanjing and other places could never be forgotten, shows how inflated and frankly unrealistic the foreign minister's ego was. But during World War II, he was in some very good company. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. 
There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But Matsuoka was about to take it to the next level. What if Soviet Russia could be brought on board? Peace would abound once China was humbled, and the Western powers would never challenge the four powers. Could this be, to quote a recently used phrase, peace in our time? And it would be Japan that made it possible. Overcome with the possibilities, the Japanese foreign minister asked for permission to go to Europe to talk to the Russians. Furthermore, and again, this seems to fly in the face of his true mission, he asked the cabinet for its approval to tell Hitler that, yes, Japan would be striking at Singapore soon. As the foreign minister was persuasive, his first request was approved. As for giving Hitler what he wanted, with no upside for Tokyo, that was flatly denied. However, the foreign minister would follow the path of Gige Kujo, and try to get the local soldiers to start the war without permission. The high command would then have no choice but to follow it through. Matsuoka left for Berlin on March 12, 1941. Hello everyone. Audible is offering my listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash worldwar and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash world war or text world war to 500 500 to get started today. That's a u d i b l e dot com slash w o r l d w a r or text that to 500 500. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine, and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. But if I may, I would like to suggest one of the following. War at the End of the World, Douglas MacArthur and the Forgotten Fight for New Guinea. 1942 to 1945, by James P. Duffy. Some 600,000 Japanese soldiers began landing in January of 1942, determined to seize the island as a cornerstone of the Empire strategy to knock Australia out of the war. General Douglas MacArthur committed 340,000 Americans, in addition to tens of thousands of Australian, Dutch, and New Guinea troops, to retake New Guinea at all costs. Or there's Target Tokyo, Jimmy Doolittle, and the Raid that Avenged Pearl Harbor by James M. Scott. Or pick something that sticks out to you, and hey, remember, it's free. But if you don't like it, you can swap it out. 
But if you're happy, remember, the book is yours to keep, no matter what. And don't forget their feature, Whisper Sync, for voice. Switch back and forth between reading and listening to the audiobook across many devices, including Amazon's Kindle and Echo, without ever losing your place or a missing word. So start your 30-day trial now, and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash worldwar or text worldwar to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. Backing up a bit, Chiang Kai-shek's world of politics was about to get even more complicated, though he did not know the full story. When we last left off with Wang Jiwei in episode 214, who had defected from Chiang's nationalist government to try to make peace with Japan in late 1938, he found himself waiting for a long time. It was not that Prime Minister Kanoye did not want to use what Wong was offering. It's just that the two sides could not agree on much. Kanoye wasn't interested in a two-year limit to pull out Japanese troops, and Wong could not settle for a Chinese government run by him that didn't cover the entire country. But even this didn't matter when, on January 5, 1939, as we have seen, Kanoye resigned. Wong waited until May, and then requested a trip to Tokyo. But everything he wanted was shot down, even before he arrived. The Japanese wanted to keep their economic dominance of China. They would not dismantle other pro-Japanese set-up governments to put everything under Wong. They would not give up their government in Manchukuo. Japanese lives had been lost in securing the area it would not be altered to appease Wong's government, if it was allowed to come to life. The one concession Wong got was that he would be allowed to use the Chinese nationalist flag, the one of Sun Yat-sen, which is not as insignificant as it sounds. But as Wong did not have any of the Chinese military behind him, and the Japanese were still not convinced they could not get at Chiang Kai-shek, Wong was kept on ice. Wong returned to Shanghai with no firm deal, but tried anyways to dominate the leaders of the various pro-Japanese governments. That did not go any better than his talks with Tokyo. Not until December 30th of 39 did an agreement get signed, but it was all one-sided. Still, Wong set up his capital in Nanjing. However, Tokyo did not send an ambassador, as that would officially recognize the new government. Instead, Wong was kept waiting, his government more on paper than in reality. But then, on March 30, 1940, the Wong nationalist government was made real. Wong had finally taken his place atop the nationalist government, the government of Sun Yat-sen. But it was hollow, as it was based on Japanese military power. Getting back to Chiang Kai-shek, to slip in the politics of the military actions already covered, in the spring of 1940, Chiang's government was at its low point, militarily. In fact, to such a degree, Chiang played the dangerous game of talking to the Japanese about negotiating. This was the main reason Tokyo kept Wang Jiwei at arm's length for so long. 
The discussions were held in Hong Kong, but came to nothing, as neither side was willing to give up much. The Japanese, because they didn't think they had to, and because Chang simply could not. So, Tokyo had its troops attack Yichang in the Hubei province, as we have seen in June. This brought Chang back to the table, and talks began again the same month. And yet, nothing had changed. Japan wanted official recognition of Manchukuo, and Chang pretended not to understand what his adversaries were asking for. So the Japanese went back to their military option and closed the rail line in Indochina in September of that year, 1940. The reason this was so perilous for the Chinese nationalists was that, earlier in the year, during the intense phase of the Battle of Britain, Japan pressured the British into closing the Burma Road. Churchill did not want to, but couldn't hold off the Luftwaffe and a possible invasion and protect Burma from a Japanese invasion all at the same time. The road was closed. It would be reopened in October when it became clear that the Nazis would not be crossing the English Channel that year. But still, Chang's meager supplies were reduced even further. Chang the man and his government spent most of 1940 on a knife's edge. He led the Japanese along just as much to tease the West as his enemy. While so many countries fell in Europe, with Britain almost being added to that list, China was still defiant. However, Chang let Churchill and FDR know that the day was coming, probably, when he would have to honestly sit down with the Japanese which was the last thing the West wanted. As we have seen, on November 30th, the Japanese formally recognized Wang Jiwei's government. But on that same day, the United States government told the world of its $100 million loan to free China. What's more, there would be 50 military aircraft given over. Of course, getting supplies bought with this loan to Chongqing was nearly impossible. But Chang's spirits were lifted, and Tokyo was put on notice. Free China was not to disappear under the flag of the rising sun. No matter there, this is all to stop communism message. Which had an element of truth to it, as Chang well knew. Back in early 1939, Chang took steps to stunt the spread of land controlled by the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Occasionally, the two sides would clash, but local leaders were blamed. Neither side wanted the world, most certainly Japan, to know that there was trouble between them. Then Chiang sent troops to reoccupy land in some parts of the provinces of Hubei, Shanxi, Henan, and Shandong to the northeast. By spring of 39, the CCP had by the sheer absence of nationalist troops, began to think of those areas as their own. Then Chang sent some 400,000 troops, men who could have been very helpful in fending off the Japanese, to the south and west of CC-controlled territory and the north. The Chinese communists were not going to be allowed to increase their lands at Chang's expense. This nationalist blockade stayed in effect until early 1940, 
Then Chang cut what financial help he was given to the CCP. Mao and the other leaders had their own people cultivate more land, but that would take time to show. The communists, like the nationalists, had to tighten their belts even further. However, the number of CCP troops was growing steadily. Back in 39, there were some 88,000 men under arms. By mid-1940, that number was somewhere around 400,000. And as Chang was strengthening his attacks against the communists, it was decided that the CCP should attack the Japanese to improve their standing in the international community. For then, how could Chang continue to justify his civil war against the CCP? So, starting during the third week of August, 1940, General Pong Duhi had some 40,000 troops of the 8th Route Army attack nearby Japanese settlements, the rail lines that connected other cities held by the Japanese, as well as rail lines that went to coal mines. Bridges and tunnels were also destroyed. This offensive, known as the Battle of the 100 Regiments, went on through September. However, from October to December, the Japanese struck back, in force. In time, the rail lines, tunnels, and bridges were recaptured and repaired. But these various structures were what allowed Japan access into western and northwestern China. This communist offensive, the only conventional attack put out by the CCP during the war, would later help Japanese General Yasuji Okamura when he took control of the North China Area Army the following summer, with his strategy, which was three all, kill all, burn all, destroy all. However, as the 8th Route Army had been pushing back on the Japanese, the 4th Route Army moved into territory once held by the Nationalists south of the Yangtze River to the north and northwest of Shanghai by some 600 kilometers. Chang's chief of the general staff ordered the communists to move back north of the Yangtze in mid-October. Chang himself followed this up by demanding the same and that all such troops were to be done repositioning themselves by the end of January 1941. In theory, at least, the communist forces were under Chang's control. It didn't help that the 4th Route Commander, Zhang Ying, was then given conflicting orders from Mao himself. In truth, Mao wasn't sure what to do, to start a clash with the nationalists or to take his recently earned glory and retreat. Still, on January 4, 1941, the CCP troops began to move out. However, they went south instead of north. As to not come under immediate nationalist attacks, excuses were sent to Chang's headquarters that claimed this route was necessary to avoid contact with the Japanese. But Chang recognized it for what it was, a chance to grab even more territory. Nationalist troops were sent by Chang to push them back. The communists, however, won most of these engagements, but soon more nationalist troops were sent north. This allowed Chang to claim a victory, but because it was over fellow Chinese, the world condemned his actions. Mao took advantage of this by saying the spirit of their alliance had been broken, and not by the communists. 
Having lost the PR war, Chang called off the attack and left the CCP alone to consolidate their latest gains. As for the local communist leader, Zhang Ying, he had been a rival of Mao's with his own territory. But Zhang died along with many of his troops. Now Mao had one less contender for the top spot. Back in November of 1940, Franklin Roosevelt won his third term. One of his major platforms was his promise not to send American boys to fight in Europe's war. But FDR found himself, like Chiang Kai-shek, stirred by events beyond his control. However, as the U.S. was trying to pull itself out of what would become known as the Great Depression, what it needed most of all were markets. Yet, with Hitler gobbling up more and more of Europe and Japan closing off China, America's economic future remained bleak. Clearly, the United States would have to do something, somewhere, at some time. But then, the worlds of all the major players changed on June 22, 1941, when Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa. The two years of peace between the dictators had come to an end. As for how this affected China, Chiang Kai-shek who already knew trouble was brewing between Berlin and Moscow due to intelligence leaks, could easily see the day that Germany would dominate the Russians, which was bad for him. But if the USSR could be made sufficiently weak, then Japan would probably give in to its innermost desire and strike at their hated enemy, leaving fewer troops for China. Obviously, that was good for him. Never mind, as Germany had struck first, that Japan was not obligated to attack Russia, Cheng mused, they probably wouldn't be able to help themselves. But overall, this was good for nationalist China. No matter how it ended up, Washington and Moscow would need an ally in the East, and China would be waiting. One of the first things Stalin did, after getting over his shock, was to order the Chinese CCP to stop fighting with the nationalists and to work together to fight the Japanese. This was his only hope for one day being able to use many of his troops in the east, watching Manchukuo. The Central Committee of the CCP accepted this request, as most of their guns and money were coming from Moscow. When Tokyo got over its shock of Barbarossa, the cabinet settled down to discuss whether Japan should take advantage of this and strike at Russian territory, touching Manchukuo. Foreign Minister Matsua and a few others were for it. Now was the time. But the representatives of the Kwangtung Army and Imperial Navy said no. At least, not yet. Let Germany siphon off troops from the east. Then they could reassess. For now, the riches of Southeast Asia waited. Also, it would not hurt to have the Japanese ambassador to the United States, Namura Kisiaburo, and diplomat Kurusu Saburo continue to talk with Secretary of State Hull. Perhaps something will come of it, but the Japanese military men doubted it and did not plan on it. Back in Washington, 
Lend-Lease was allowing the United States to supply Britain and Russia with war materials, in the hopes of not having to actively join the fight itself. But as the days went by in 1941, that seemed less and less likely. FDR pushed through a deal that would give Chang another $45 million in military equipment. William Wild Bill Donovan, head of the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, was also sent to Chongqing to assess the situation. But the most telling of FDR's acceptance that the United States would eventually be pulled into the war was in September of 1941, when General John Magruder, the head of the AMMISCA, the American military mission in China, was also sent in-country to secretly prepare for the possible nationalist entry into an alliance against Japan. Of course, not going to war is better than being prepared to. So in early and mid-1941, the United States and Japanese went back and forth diplomatically to try to bend the other to its will. After Japan invaded French Indochina, the United States imposed an oil embargo. This was all the war faction of the Japanese cabinet needed to demand further action, to safeguard the land of the rising sun. It was decided that the United States would accept Japanese dominance over Asia, or there would be war. Having lost the fight, Prime Minister Kanoye stepped down again on October 16, 1941. In his place was now General Haidike Tojo. It was decided by this cabinet that war preparations with the United States would be sped up, but at the same time, negotiations would continue. However, if no solution could be reached by December 1st, the cabinet decided to solve their problems through conflict. The first strike against America would be on December 8th. The initial targets would be Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, the Netherlands, East Indies, and the Philippines. Epilogue. In the spring of 1940, the United States fleet, under Admiral James Richardson, held its annual maneuvers off Hawaii, called Fleet Problem 21. About to return home on May 9th, Richardson was ordered to stay at Pearl Harbor the United States Naval Base near Honolulu. This order came from Chief of Naval Operations Harold Betty Stark. Richardson did so, but didn't like it. Two weeks later, he wrote to Stark a long list of reasons why Pearl Harbor was inadequate for his ongoing exercise needs. To which Stark replied, rather starkly, You are there because of the deterrent effect which is thought your presence may have on the Japs going into the East Indies. Then, the U.S. War Department, believing Japan would be even more aggressive now that it had a treaty with Moscow, thus was safe from that quarter, wrote to the Army's Hawaiian Department commander, Immediate alert. Complete defensive organization to deal with possible trans-Pacific raid. Maintain alert until further orders. And this was a prudent move, but after a few months of no action, the alert was dropped. 
Meanwhile, Admiral Richardson, still not happy about being stuck in Hawaii with less than adequate facilities, flew to Washington to complain directly to Stark and to others and to the president, demonstrating his detailed knowledge of things political and naval Richardson told the president that having the Pacific Fleet at Pearl would probably deter a civilian government, but that's not what Japan had at the moment. The military was running things. As for his fleet being an actual deterrent, it was currently undermanned, unprepared for war, and had no train of auxiliary ships, without which it could not undertake active operations, which was all true enough but FDR's mind was set. He told Richardson, his Senkus, the commander-in-chief U.S. fleet, that he knew the force was having a deterring effect, but if anyone could give a good statement which will convince the American people and the Japanese government that in bringing the battleships to the West Coast, we were not stepping back, he would be happy to hear it. Richardson held on to his view and said so, that his fleet's current location was a waste of time. Not exactly a smart career move. Secretary of State Cordell Hall tried to soften the fleet's presence by saying, we were pleading with them, Japan, for peaceful relations. If we happen to have a double-barreled shotgun sitting back in the corner, it does no harm, to say the least. But as we have already seen with Japan's warrior code, this was considered a challenge by those in Tokyo. Whereas Fleet Admiral William Leahy was more succinct. When he met with Richardson, his response was, to paraphrase, You say the fleet is not ready for war, and you have a long list. Well, I suggest you use that list to rectify the situation. After all, I've been telling Congress the fleet is ready for war. But whether Richardson got to work is irrelevant, because 90 days later, he was relieved of duty and replaced by Admiral Husband E. Kimmel. Kimmel took over on February 1st, 1941. And, of course, the Japanese took notice of the U.S. fleet remaining in Hawaii. However, Tokyo did not react the way FDR had hoped. Admiral Iso Roku Yamamoto wrote, Conversely, we're within striking distance of Hawaii too. In trying to intimidate us, America has put itself in a vulnerable position. If you ask me, they're just that bit too confident. 